Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Father, we look forward to that day of divine hospitality when we will dwell in peace and safety with our neighbors because of the atoning work and the restoration that Christ has brought. We ask, Lord, that you would illuminate your word to us through your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as you read that vision, you could be forgiven for a little bit of confusion about where in the Bible we actually are. If you read those words and you thought, wait a second, is this Zechariah or is this Job? That would make a lot of sense because the setting of the vision of Zechariah here and the opening of the book of Job have some startling similarities between them, right? There's some things going on here that are very familiar to us from Job. Satan, for example, is present in both scenes. We have the court of God and his presence and these angels all gathered around, and Satan is there as the accuser. In fact, that's what the word Satan means, is accuser. Satan is the one whose role in scenes like this is to bring accusations. He denounces the impurity of God's people. Whether he's tearing down Job or tearing down Joshua, the high priest, that's what he does. And he does it because by tearing down God's people, he attacks the integrity of God's salvation. God claims, these are my people, and then Satan says, yeah, but look at them. It brings into disrepute the power of God. In this scene, of course, it's not Job who's on trial. It's Joshua, the high priest. And as a high priest, Joshua stands here in a special relationship. 
He stands as a representative of his people because that's what priests do. Priests represent the people before God. So as we see Joshua here, we have to understand him as, as standing in some sense for Israel, standing for these returned exiles whose story we've been looking at. If you imagine what the charge against Joshua might look like if Satan were able to make his case, what would that case be? Well, it's connected to rights. What right does Joshua have to be here? What right does this man who is dressed in filthy garments have to stand in the presence of a holy God? Shouldn't the fact that he has appeared before God dressed the way he is condemn him? Shouldn't he be cast out? Shouldn't he be ashamed? Shouldn't he be mortified at his defilement? Doesn't he deserve to be punished? Well, I think Joshua could have related to those charges, conscious as he was of the way he was dressed. I think had he heard those words, he would have understood there was some truth in them. And we can relate to that because we all know what it's like to be defiled, to be filthy, to be unworthy. These are feelings that we've all shared. Let me tell you a story of my own defilement. This happened early one morning, probably about 6 a.m., in a field in Belgium. It was uh, the Battle of Waterloo, where the Battle of Waterloo was fought. Uh, My family had traveled from America to Europe. It was my first time setting foot on European soil, something I had dreamed of forever. I was kind of expecting the Europeans to welcome and embrace me and insist that I stay forever. So the first thing we did, before all the shops were open and everything, we drove straight to Waterloo to see the battlefield. Now, there's not dead bodies and skeletons or anything now. It's just a pretty little field with a hill in the middle and a monument on the hill. My brother and I climbed up the monument to get to the top. It was kind of a misty, rainy morning, but even so, I felt pretty cool being up there where Napoleon had been and and all of that. As we descended the hill, my brother started running down the hill, and I followed him, running after him. When he reached the, the place where the hill became the ground, he leapt into the air, and he landed on his feet on the ground and just kept going. As I approached the junction between the hill and the ground, I sort of tumbled and rolled and finally came to sort of a plop at the bottom in a pool of mud. Fun fact about this trip, before we got here at the airport, uh, it turns out my luggage had been lost in the journey over. So I had no clothes to change into. I was caked in mud. And our plan for the day was to go from Belgium to southern Germany, seeing a bunch of sites along the way. So what I had been looking forward to became an absolute nightmare. Because everywhere we went, I went caked in dried mud. My clothes were covered in filth. Every cathedral that we looked at, every museum that everybody else wanted to visit, I was petulant. and I didn't want to do anything anymore because I was unfit to be seen. If we had walked into one of those places and the museum volunteer had said, stop right there, young man, get out of here. You are defiled. I would have said, I know I am. I'm ashamed to be here. This is not the way I had planned to enter Europe. You feel like you don't belong. 
You feel like you're unfit, like you're unworthy, that you've been besmirched or defiled, that, that other people, they might belong here, but, but you don't. That was the accusation against Joshua. That was the accusation against the people that he represented, that they weren't good enough. They didn't deserve what they'd been given. And we've already seen the conditions in Jerusalem in this post-exile period were humble, were modest, were honestly embarrassing. These were the circumstances that could easily lead to a sense of disillusionment. Our temple is nowhere near as great as the old temple was. This is humiliating to worship in a place like this. And our high priest is nothing like the high priests of old. Nowhere near as good as they used to be. That discontent easily leads to despair. A high priest, as I said, is just a representative of his people. And if our temple is, is no good and our priest is no good, well, maybe we're no good. Maybe that's the problem. Like Maybe those things are just a reflection of our own unworthiness. They had returned from exile, but you could easily imagine them questioning the love of God because they hadn't all returned. This return was nothing like the Exodus. Didn't have all the glory that the Exodus had had. This was a kind of humble, whimpering return. And since they'd come back, they had been making a lot of effort, but not receiving much in the way of blessings. They had to wonder whether or not they really were God's people. They had to remember the name that had been affixed to them by the prophet Hosea, Lo-Ami, not my people, not my people. And again, we can relate to them in that. As we look around, we can make comparisons of the same sort. The church is not what it used to be. They don't make Christians like they used to. Like we are unworthy of the tradition that we have inherited. And yet, our inadequate churches, our inadequate leaders, aren't they just a reflection of us? Don't they just reflect how far we have fallen? Our shallow, self-centered, short, attention-spanned lives beset by sin? What other kind of church, what other kind of leaders would a people like this produce? It's easy for us, like them, to become disillusioned and to wonder if we could possibly be the people God is, is working amongst, if this could possibly be the result of his grace. Well, in this central vision, what we behold happening should be of immense encouragement to all of us who have been disillusioned like this. Because what we see in this vision is a filthy priest standing to represent a filthy people And he is made pure and made clean by Christ. He is cleansed. He is a brand plucked from the fire of destruction. His defiled robes are removed and they are replaced with priestly vestments modeled on those that the high priest Aaron received in the book of Exodus. The accusation against him isn't just repudiated. The accusation isn't allowed to be made. Before Satan can speak, unlike in the case of Job, he's silenced and he is shut down. The iniquities of this high priest are forgiven as his vestments are removed and he receives a call to serve the Lord. And all this, we're told, is accomplished by, 
and looks forward to the coming of a person who's referred to here by Yahweh as my servant, the branch. My servant, the branch, is coming. The messianic priest king who's coming and whose crowning will complete God's work of salvation so that his people can live in safety. That's the glory of what we see here. The assurance is it's the filthy people that Jesus has come to save. The fact that you're filthy shouldn't lead you to doubt that God is your God because he's come to cleanse the filthy. And it's God's love, not your work, that makes you Ami, my people. This vision, you might say, gives us a glimpse of the gospel. What's being acted out here is the gospel. It is the work of Jesus Christ. But it's being acted out here, you might say, through a glass darkly. The gospel through a glass darkly. We see a very New Testament thing happening in the Old Testament, but it's not quite as fully realized and shaped as it would become later. And yet, you can still see it. So let's look at the gospel through a glass darkly. So God's people in this vision through the high priest are a branch plucked from the fire. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, here's the rebuke, but listen to the words. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? The angel of Yahweh, as we've seen before, is the angel of the messianic presence. He is a Christophany. He's a vision of Christ before the incarnation. And one of the things that helps you to see that is that throughout the visions, he's always doing Jesus-y things. He's responsible for saying and doing things that later we'll see Jesus doing. Now here, the angel of Yahweh is the judge. He's the one who renders judgment. But what's striking is the judge in the case is also the advocate for the accused. It is the judge who speaks up on behalf of the accused. Now, Joshua, of course, is a historical figure. We've already looked in our our, our brief examination of Haggai's prophecy at the historical circumstances. And Joshua and Zerubbabel are both historical figures. Zerubbabel is the governor. Joshua is the high priest. So here Zechariah is seeing a vision of a guy he knows, of a person that that he's interacted with, who now is seen in the presence of God. Now Satan's role here is to do what Satan always does. Like he is here to smear us before God. He is here to make God's people look bad before God. That's kind of the flip side of what he does in Genesis 3, where he smears God before us. He misrepresents God to God's people. Satan is sort of like the, the, the intercessor who's lying to you, the go-between who misrepresents the parties on either side of the equation. And Satan wants to say, these people cannot be your people because They're too much like Adam. They're fallen just like him. They're filthy just like him. They failed you just as he did. And in the rebuke that we see, you might imagine Christ 
answering that accusation. You say they're too much like Adam. Well, I am the last Adam, and I say they're mine. This is how the judge, who is our advocate, addresses Satan and shuts him down. Silences him. He rebukes him. In whose name? In the name of Yahweh, but specifically Yahweh who chooses Jerusalem. Yahweh, the God of that choice, of that election. The one who has chosen these people rebukes the one who says they cannot be your people. Of course they are my people. I've chosen them. And then he says, is he not a brand plucked from the fire? Haven't I taken him out of the flames? Haven't I snatched him from judgment, from destruction? In other words, haven't I already rescued him? How can you say he's not mine if I've already snatched him out of the flames? And if I have, he's immune to prosecution. The no charge can be brought against him, which explains why in the court of God, the accuser is silenced. He has no standing. Because really, this vision is picturing for us, again, through a glass darkly, what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8. If you go to the end of Romans chapter 8, verse 33 and 34, Paul says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So what Zechariah saw as a vision of the future, Paul can address as a present reality, that for God's chosen people, there is no charge to answer because the accusation cannot even be brought because the accuser has been rebuked. And then the high priest is reclothed. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments, so we're not arguing over whether or not he was defiled. He clearly was. But the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you in pure vestments. So the act of taking off the clothing, here the angel of Yahweh interprets it for us. What this means is your sin, your iniquity, is being taken from you. And now you're being reclothed with your vestments. And then Zechariah jumps in. He says, let them put a clean turban on his head. They put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. The garments aren't just dirty. They're defiled. Uh, They're ritually unclean. He should not be able to enter into the Holy of Holies dressed in this way because you, the way it was supposed to work is you cleansed yourself and then you entered in. But here we see a picture like a man cannot cleanse himself to enter into the presence of God. God must cleanse the man in order to make him worthy. And that's exactly what God does. Otherwise, Joshua would be unfit to stand in the presence of a holy God. And when the angel of Yahweh takes these garments away, the iniquity that makes him impure is taken away as well. And as I say, we see this angel of Yahweh doing Jesus' things. This purification uh, is only accomplished by blood, by an atoning sacrifice. And yet the angel of Yahweh does it. But the pure vestments that he's dressed in, he's not just given clean clothes. You have to remember who this is. Joshua, the high priest, has entered in, is recognizable as a high priest by his clothing, even though it's filthy. And as his 
filthy priestly garments are removed. They're replaced with pure priestly garments, including a turban, a headdress that was essential to the priestly garments. If you go back to Exodus chapters 39 and 40, God gives the instructions for how the high priest is to be clothed and all the circumstances surrounding the anointing and investiture of the first high priest, Aaron. You'll see also in Leviticus 8, this is mentioned as well. And this this headdress or turban, you might think of as a mitre, which is the pointy little hat that that bishops wear. It's a, a symbol of authority, of like churchly authority that's being given. So it's not just that he needs a hat because people like to wear hats. It's that this signifies the sort of crowning or, or the, the culmination of this redressing. He is made into a pure representative, a pure high priest. So this is a vision of what we would recognize as redemption. Right? This is a vision of what happens when the gospel is at work. Those who are defiled, those who are filthy, are cleansed by the blood of Christ, but not only cleansed from sin, but also clothed for priestly service. Also made into something, not just changed from sinful to righteous, but but fashioned and formed to serve the Lord. And as priests, we receive a call. We see the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, I will If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. I will give you the right of access among those who are standing there. Now, as always, the call to obedience comes after the cleansing, not before. It's not, if you will keep my ways, then maybe I will remove your filthy garments and make you one of my people. That already happens. And now comes a call to obedience, a call to follow Covenant faithfulness like this always comes as a form of gratitude. It's not a way of earning salvation. It's a response to a salvation that's already been freely given. And the promise here is specifically a promise to establish a royal priesthood. Right? The same way that, that 1 Peter 2.9 speaks of us as, as a royal priesthood, here you see a priesthood being established, a pure one that will rule on behalf of God and have a right of access to him. And all of this is based on what is to come. And immediately, once these words have been spoken, we're told, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So Joshua and the men who are with him, maybe other priests, maybe Joshua and Zerubbabel, maybe the people who he represents, all of them are signs. They are types foreshadowing what is to come. And what is to come is my servant, the branch. Now, even in that title, you have two ideas coming together in a way that we've talked about before. My servant alludes to the suffering servant that Isaiah prophesied, the priest who would sacrifice himself for the sins of the people. The branch, though, 
is a little bit different. The branch connects us back to that branch from the root of Jesse, the king from the line of David who would come, the anointed one, the Messiah. So now we see something that that only comes into focus in this post-exile period with these last Old Testament prophets, that the king who is to come and the priest who is to come are the same person. They are the same person, my servant, the branch. Now, the stone that's mentioned here is probably associated with the, the, like you might think of like the jewel in the crown, but a stone that kind of goes in with the headdress. But if you go back to Exodus 39, you see that, that in that description of the high priestly garment, there's a plate that is attached to the headdress, and the plate is inscribed just as the stone is inscribed. And it is inscribed with a certain phrase. Now, in Zechariah, we don't get the phrase. But if you go back to Exodus, you do. The words on the plate that are on the forehead of the priest are holy to Yahweh. Holy to the Lord. But the one who wears this is holy, is set apart, is sanctified to Yahweh. Is a sign of, a seal of his belonging to the holy God. The seven eyes that the stone has, sometimes this, this word for eyes here, some, some will say uh, facets, like a seven-faceted stone. But you'll see in Zechariah 4, there's actually an allusion to these eyes as the all-seeing eyes of Yahweh. The fact that there are seven, like seven is the number of completions. So another sense of the uh, omnipotence, the the omniscience of God, the fact that there's nothing hidden from his view. There's even the implication that when God looks upon his people, when he looks upon us represented in this high priest, what he beholds is the words inscribed upon us, holy to Yahweh. When you go to the book of Revelation and you start reading all this stuff about uh, Mark's on people, marks in their foreheads, that sort of thing. Think of this. Think of the, the plate that is inscribed that the high priest wears, the way that God sets his people apart. The work of the branch who is to come, the work the branch does is a work of atonement. When he comes, the land's iniquity will be removed in a single day, the day of Christ's crucifixion is when that work will be done. And the result of that work, what it amounts to in the final verse, the final promise, Zechariah 3, is safety. It's safety. You might wonder, okay, well, I see we're going to do some hospitality. We're going to invite our neighbors under our vine and under our fig tree. What does that have to do with safety? You go to 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 25. There's a description of the reign of Solomon and what that was like. And it says this, And Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and under his fig tree. So in the reign of the last Davidic king to reign over the whole kingdom, safety, the safety of his power and reign was symbolized by this idea of dwelling under your vine and under your fig tree. And now it recurs again. Now the branch will create safety for his people. Interestingly, a safety that they will invite their neighbors into, that they will reach out and invite others to enter into the safety and security of his reign. 
Now, all this, as, as we look at this vision, a lot of things that would have been really cryptic to people in the days of Zechariah to us seem like thinly veiled references to the gospel. Right? We look at this and think, yeah, it's basically a proclamation of the work of Jesus Christ. That's because we no longer see the gospel through a glass darkly. We see it face to face. In the New Testament, in that revelation of Jesus Christ, we see it. Here, in a glimpse of the brand and the branch, we see the gospel in part. But when Christ comes, we see him as our redeemer. We see him as our redemption. We see our redemption, our redeemer face to face, and we recognize Jesus Christ. You are a brand plucked from the fire. I mentioned Meredith Klein last week. He writes about redemption this way in this vision. He says, removal of the unclean clothing symbolized the legal blotting out of sins, the rebuttal of Satan's accusations, forgiveness, the imputation of the sins of God's elect to Christ. And the complementary act to that, the reclothing, will signify the judicial declaration of their righteousness, justification through the imputation to them of the righteousness of the messianic servant, the righteousness of his act of obedience, and fulfillment of the probationary task of vanquishing the serpent. In other words, if you got your Westminster Confession out, you could look at all of the various categories in which we talk about salvation, and you would find the vision of Zechariah ticking off each of these boxes. Yeah, there it is. There it is. This is all the work of redemption. But if you're not technically minded or you can't keep all of those abstract terms in your head, just remember the picture. Cling to the picture of the high priest whose filthy garments are taken away, who is reclothed. And remember that he stands for you. He stands for you. If he was a brand plucked from the fire, so are you. If you're in Christ Jesus, then you have been snatched by him from the fire of destruction, and there is no charge to answer because your Redeemer, Jesus Christ, looks upon you face to face. Jesus is my servant, the branch. He is the priest who gave himself for us and the king who reigns with us in the world to come. We look back on the history of the Bible and we recognize types and shadows, people in the Old Testament who uh, in certain ways foresignified, looked forward to Jesus to come. And of course, Joshua is one of those types. I don't mean Joshua the high priest. I mean the other one, Joshua the conqueror. When you go back right after Moses, after this, this high priestly text that we read in Exodus, it's Joshua who leads the people into the land of promise. And now, we see a priest who is leading the people back to the land of promise, who bears the same name as that first Joshua and who stands here as a representative of the people. Of course, it was Jesus, whose name is a Hellenized version of the same name, Joshua, who actually did the work. He's the one that they pointed to. If you are the brand, in other words, he is the branch. He is the branch leading you into the fullness of God's promise. You have good reason to rejoice because you've been promised safety. You've been promised a kingdom that you can bring your neighbors into. You've been promised security and blessing. 
and the powers that would work against that, the powers that would rob you of that assurance, Jesus is already silent. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.